Welcome to Race Trader, a podcast where we trade ideas on race by way of discussing film. I'm your host, Boston. And I'm Jay. This episode, we'll be discussing Moonlight, directed by Barry Jenkins in 2016. Spoilers ahead, if you haven't seen Moonlight, pause this episode and watch it. Next week, we'll be covering Fences, directed by Denzel Washington and written by August Wilson in 2016. You can drop us a line at Boston, NJ, at racetraderpodcast.com. Check the spelling in the show notes. Make sure you subscribe and give us five stars on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. So I feel, if my memory is correct, that I recommended this movie. I think so, but I think it's one of those movies that almost had to be done. Absolutely. Uh, did you see this in theaters? I did not. I saw it at this really small theater with like four other people. It was awesome. What were your first thoughts? I mean, I'm a huge fan. It's arguably one of the best movies I've seen. I wouldn't say it's my favorite movie of all time, but in terms of could this movie have been done better? Did it change the game? What did it add? I mean, there's just so much to this movie that I don't, I, I'm hard pressed to even have one criticism. It was very moving and, you know, all the broad strokes of things that are some, of something successful and meaningful. I like to talk about right out the gate, this movie starts with that Boris Gardner song. This movie came out in 2016. I first heard that Boris Gardner song when To Pimp a Butterfly came out. I think the first opening track to that album by Kendrick had that sampled and it kept on repeating until he started rapping over, I think, like a Thundercat bass line. So I felt kind of in on what the movie was and a really good friend of mine recommended me this movie who's black and he's like please call me when you're done watching this i want your take who also happens to be gay and it, you know so it meant the world to him and he was like yeah he's like i love that song and i'm quoting him here he was like that song just told the viewers if you have a problem with this this movie's not for you mm, and like out the gate it's just letting you know where it stands i thought of this movie as a dark poem, I guess, like a beautiful dark poem. And in the conversations over here with my wife about the movie, I said the best movies from the black experience are the ones that capture it the most accurate. And that goes back to the Queen and Slim situation. Even though the Queen and Slim was almost like this Bonnie and Clyde ride, I think there were really poignant points in the movie where it captured what it was like to be black and the struggle of what it's like to be black. The 80s, and we come back to this, the 80s and the early 90s and the crack epidemic was a tragic thing. And there's something that a lot of people watching this movie might have missed that were very poignant to me and very poignant to the other people that have seen this movie when he comes home and the TV's missing. If you're black and you have a relative that use crack, if like if you grew up in the in those kind of neighborhoods, that was a common occurrence. The way that it dealt with it was the way that it really happens. The crackhead mom being raised by somebody in your neighborhood that's not necessarily really family to you is very black. I think the way that Juan, the way that he captures that and really takes a hold to him like he's his son and then has honest conversations with him about sexuality about what he could be as a gay person it was very real. It was something very raw about it. Even the fact that in a lot of the scenes, the male characters don't wear makeup. You know, they're just raw. It's very raw. It's very real. Like you're in Miami. You can feel them sweating. You can feel him putting his head in that sink full of ice because there's no air conditioning. There's something very real and raw about it that I haven't seen any place else in film. This movie was put out by A24. And as a production company, I mean, that production house is putting out the best shit 20th century women hereditary the witch the lighthouse uncut gems in good times all of those movies are some of the best movies i've seen in a very long time and are all have that raw realistic cinematic very impressionistic aesthetic and also it's around the same time period as atlanta which feels a lot That's like realism. this and well, surrealism, but I'm talking about like the way visually the directors play with color 
and how something looks and the rawness like it and just like as like an example um of like real in atlanta was when uh, i forget her name at this point but the female characters uh like fucking with a urine test and mm-hmm. she's doing it with her baby diapers mm-hmm. like that whole scene is just so rugged and raw that's like akin to certain scenes you might see in this in terms of what like specificity and realism it captures but you also have i mean this came out later but uh you know queen and slim and um you know get out might have been like more polished but like i would say like queen and slim is also very similar in tone three years later but yeah i think like moonlight in atlanta visually share a lot i agree with that from an emotional perspective after seeing moonlight that's the way that i felt after seeing 12 years a slave like i I felt like it emotionally moved me in that kind of way and it moved me in a way that was like i can't believe somebody was able to capture this amount of pain on film and it made it feel accurate it also captures that without demonizing anyone this movie really shows every single character as fully dimensional people with varying problems they show the crackhead mother as a fully dimensional person who's caught and they show a drug dealer also happen to be a beautiful father figure so Mm -hmm. they show all of these sides to give you what these experiences are i don't have any criticism of the movie I do wonder if this is poverty porn. You know, like, are we exploring people's pain? Is is the movie not ugly enough? Is that what you mean? No, it is ugly, but it's real. It's raw. And sometimes those depictions of the black experience are exhausting. Don't get me wrong. This is not the only depiction of the black experience. Well, this this is one of the most critically acclaimed depictions of the black experience. Of recent. Of recent. A color purple was critically acclaimed. And it was a painful a painful rendition of the black experience. Well, you know, we've talked before like how a show like Insecure is more aspirational, right? Which I think there's a place for both. But one side's just representing what is now and the other side is representing what could be. Or what is to a certain group of people. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So what's... An obvious example for you of poverty porn. So back during The Wire, and shortly after the show ended, there were these people that would show up in Baltimore just to look through the neighborhood to see what it really looked like. Yeah, well, fuck those people. Yes. However, (laughs) however... It's like a form of rubbernecking? Yes. Is Moonlight some form of the burning car on the highway? just done elegantly? I think no, because it takes its subject matter seriously. I've mentioned this, I think, before. I forget now. We've definitely talked about it, at least outside the podcast. But the movie Lean on Me, in a lot of ways, can be seen as like maybe poverty porn. I, I really enjoyed that movie as a kid, but like I recently rewatched it during this pandemic, and I found it weird. But it's written and directed by two white dudes, so it's written by outsider perspectives. I think, like essentially, what I'm, I guess what I'm saying is, is that poverty porn... I think becomes a legitimate issue when it's being framed by an outsider. And this movie is clearly not that. And it is what I imagine being a very authentic experience of what it's like to be gay and black. I can agree with that. I'm going to push back one lean on me because it's one of those weird movies that exists in black culture, like Sister Act. Listen, I love it too. I'm a sucker for it. I still enjoyed it when I rewatched it, but it doesn't hold up. I, I, when was the last time you seen it? I saw it with my daughter, my oldest daughter, who's 13. I saw it with her maybe three or four months ago. Oh. And it is not the best cinematic experience. But I think... Let, let's let's let, put Lean on me side for a sec. Do you agree with the fact that poverty porn is more likely to happen when framed by an outsider? No, I don't. I guess I don't understand the criticism. It's more of a byproduct. So I don't want to get into the politics of respectability at all. I don't. And I don't think that this movie needs to be lumped in. This movie's excellent. And I think I would like to see more excellent movies that don't show black people at their worst. 
we haven't talked about this movie, but this is two of the black movies that everybody loves. There's The Best Man and then there's The Best Man too, right? And these are movies about black people getting married. Never seen them. Yeah, one is about black people getting married and the, and the wedding and all the stuff, the tumultuous stuff that comes up before the wedding. And the second one- Sounds thrilling. <laughs> I like The Best Man in the way that you would like a rom-com about right. black by black people, right? Yes. <laughs> Part two, though, is darker. Part okay. two deals with cancer, job loss, and a lot of other things, like you know, maxing out your career at a certain point, right? Or or never rediscovering that magic and real serious relationship issues that it starts to deal with. And what it does it through the lens where everybody's employed. Everybody. Well, that's most rom-coms in general, black but, or white. But part two isn't a rom-com. Part two is substantially okay. darker. These people have regular jobs and they're doing regular things, more or less like a coming to America kind of thing without obviously the, the hyperbolic nature of the situation and coming to America, right? And that's one of the things that coming to America, which we initially reviewed, did very well, is just showed black people doing regular things that aren't necessarily them at their worst. And I think when you're watching Moonlight, you're seeing black people at their worst. Now they're functioning to the best that they can in this environment, but it's hard not to escape the fact that these people, all of them, are, are in a terrible situation. Of course. Apparently this is a place in Miami that has rarely ever been covered. Like I'm not very familiar with the geography of Florida much. Neither am I. In a similar way, another movie, I don't know if A24 put this out, but it's definitely similar in tone. Have you seen The Florida Project? No, I have not. It's really good. It's really dark. And it's about a motel. And like these kids that barely have parents and are running around. And it's really dark and really sad. But it's also like incredible. Highly recommended. But it's in a similar way to Moonlight, except not specific to the black experience. And not about homosexuality. But... Like, it feels to me like what you're saying is, is to avoid this poverty porn thing, they have to lie? No, they have to find other experiences that are authentic. Right. But I mean, this is, it just seems like a weird observation to make when, name me another movie that directly addresses being gay and black in America. There really isn't many, if any. There's some in comedy, maybe, and that's like yeah. A there, there isn't many that address being gay in black in any real authentic way. You have it kind of in the show, The Deuce, but that's only a very small portion. In the of Wire. That. Yeah, you have Omar. Um, yeah, that's an interesting point. I, Omar was definitely a pivotal character for that reason. Yes, and. Drawing a blank And on. do you have a criticism of The Wire for doing that? No. The thing is, I think we came off, we did Queen and Slim, we did Training Day, and maybe these are all darker, negative depictions. Outside of coming to America, we have yet to cover a really light movie. It, but well, Training Day is arguably light. Training Day is comparatively compared to Medea. Um, Medea, though, I'm, is handling really fucked up subject matter. But I mean, <laughs> the black experience in America is fucked up. really fucked up. So, <laughs> so I mean, yeah, they're getting it. But it isn't always. And and I think, no. and that's, I don't know. I don't want to take away from Moonlight. I think Barry Jenkins did an amazing job with this. We need to cover a light movie soon. Or I think that there should be a movie made about black people doing regular things that's as critically acclaimed that doesn't involve the darker side of the universe. That's kind of what I'm saying. I was thinking the movie Dear White People, I think has a good balance of both fun and like political polemic. Mm. So it's still addressing all the realities, but it's doing it within the structure of a college university. So like there's a sense of security in that, mm -hmm. uh, that enables, I think, a more light vibe to it that's not as heavy but just as intellectually fun. That might be a good example of something like that. Do you remember the calamity that was the Oscars the year that Moonlight won? Yeah, they they announced- What was the movie it that- It was that white Ryan Gosling- La La Land. La La Land. White people got a depiction of white people being happy and dancing. 
that almost won Best Picture. You know, like... Well, it just goes to show you the disparity of the black experience. Like, it's like what we said comparing... Um, but La La Land isn't real. Like, if you could imagine that up for white people, why couldn't you imagine that up for black people? Because I think fundamentally in this country, in order for it to be real to white people, it has to show a darker side of black people. Like, that's the only way that white people would really accept it. I'm not saying you don't have an argument, but wouldn't you say as a black man that there is a pressure on you? Okay, like in this election that thankfully uh, Trump has lost, Mm -hmm. like Biden made that comment a while back about if you don't vote for me, you're not black or something to that extent. So that is a good example of a pressure put on uh, an entire community monolithically to represent your race or advocate for your race. And so as a filmmaker, with the challenge of being black in America, wouldn't there be that pressure without the expectation of the white gaze to address these realities and speak these truths? Because for so long, black people have been gaslit. Chris Rock was recently interviewed uh, by Neil Brennan and Chris Rock has this observation on Jim Crow where he was like, slavery was slavery, but it had its rules and everything was understood. Jim Crow was just fucking mean because constantly now you're being told that, no, slavery is over. Racism is gone, but you're just treated abhorrently and so there was like a like a psychological fuckery this gaslighting that's been happening so i feel like it's important to show things like the wire changed my perspective on so much and has enabled me alongside many documentaries that support this like enabled me to like empathize with communities i wasn't recently tapped into before there's that too i just think there's like some people are shitty at handling it and become way more voyeuristic so I do feel a certain amount of pressure as a black man to represent my race. However, it's not always about race. And even though it is, for instance... I I agree with that. I took my family on vacation to Newport, Rhode Island, which is an upscale New England town. Mm -hmm. And we ran into other black couples there just enjoying great seafood by the ocean. The same way anybody else would. And yes, we understand that we're in the minority and that we might be treated differently, even though we had a great time in Newport. You probably gave the nod. Yes, we gave the nod. (laughs) Well, so there's the only racial portion of this experience. I I had recently gotten for Father's Day this Black Father t-shirt that I'm actually wearing now. And I went to go grab coffee with it on. And, you know, a couple of white people were giving me, oh, like, oh, he's wearing that t-shirt. I've never seen, like, very curious about it. But we can exist in a reality where poverty and race it doesn't exist at the forefront of every decision and everything that we do. And that's really what I'm talking about. Like, if I think back to the movies that Denzel has won an Oscar for or been nominated for, it recently was for um, Fences, where he lost, which was a poor black guy who got somebody else pregnant with Viola Davis. He won for Training Day, which is also a dark depiction of a black man. There was Glory. Yeah, There was the hurricane, which was a man, a glory was a slave, right? Recently liberated to go fight in the civil war. And the hurricane was a falsely accused boxer, right? Who served 20 years falsely in prison. Do you know what I mean? Did you see where I'm going with this? Well, but now you're talking about the Academy Awards. Like it's any movie that handles some form of human tragedy. So it would make sense that that would go with the black, like Schindler's List. Um, yeah, but then you like have the like a, my mind, a Beautiful Mind with Russell Crowe. Fucking boring movie. Yes. So goddamn boring. Yes. <laughs> but there are other movies that are like that. What's, but Anything what's a, with Meryl Streep. What's a light, Beautiful Mind's still not a light movie. What is a light Academy Award winning movie? I have to go through. What was that? You'll be hard pressed to find it, though. Is the point? Look, I'm going to tell you this. La La Land story. La La Land was lighting things up a couple years ago. So La La Land didn't win. Yes, but it was nominated, right? Like so, and and I think, like I said, I don't know why that movie's. I didn't care about that movie either. But like, like most movies have like a a darkness to them. No, that's not true. Like the ones that win awards do. 
I mean, what's a great HBO Forrest show that's not Gump dark? Was not dark. Well, yeah, it was. Kind of. What's a award-winning HBO show? There's, yeah, that's my point. There's Sex in the City, which is not dark. Oh, okay, fair enough. All right, yeah, Sex in the City. <laughs> Curb your enthusiasm. Curb your enthusiasm. But that's, that is dark. There, there are white comedies that win Oscars. Well, that's white privilege. It is. <laughs> um, and, you know, like, uh, uh, what are the most critically acclaimed, like some of the what's, most- Okay, what's a Denzel Washington movie that should have won that was a positive expression of the black experience? The only one that I think that would come close, and it was positive, but it was still negative in some ways. And I think it was The Great Debaters. He played the debate coach for The it. Great Debaters. Oh, remember the Titans too. Remember the Titans was a positive. Was yeah. positive, but it still had the good, undertones of racism. And right. this guy coming, but to, it was a, it was a great depiction of a black figure. Yes, that wasn't mired in. Well, yeah, but that's it the thing was. though. Like, see. So let's let's try and pivot back to Moonlight. Um, <laughs> so like Moonlight, well, a couple of things about Moonlight. Like as a white dude, watching Moonlight, I don't know why exactly, but I don't feel like a voyeur. There's an inclusive, like entirely human component to the entirety of this movie, despite the fact that it is very specific and has a lot of detail that enables me to understand everything that is happening. Um, it might take, you know, maybe for a white person with less experience with like the black community to some degree, like a few more watches to pick up on all the subtext and the inferred like mm -hmm. body language communicated throughout. But it's all there readily available for you to digest and process. So I felt invited. And then I also leave that movie feeling hopeful. He found his love now i don't know if that love's going to be his forever if they're going to stay together i don't think that's the point i think though he found he found his home where he was able to be vulnerable again i think that was the beauty of it and i also think so this movie's not hopeless it's not i think maybe that's what separates it from being just poverty porn but none of the great black experience movies are hopeless i'll bring it back to 12 years of slave with Chiwetel, I know he was nominated. I can't remember if he won the Oscar for it. And he made it back home. It was hopeful in that regard that he made it out of slavery. Look, I don't want to get off too far on a tangent here. I honestly, I'm processing this as we're having this conversation. Of course. Moonlight shows elegantly the dangers of black male vulnerability and how it takes a while if you ever get to open up to a person. One of the things that I found so tragic out of in Moonlight and honest was when at the end, when Sharon was asked whether or not he had been with anybody since that day at the beach sexually. And you said, yeah, you said he, he hadn't. He said he hadn't. Because you imagine yourself for like 10 years holding up all that sexual anxiety. When after he gets that phone call, he has the wet dream with from Kevin. Yeah. And it's all very like subtle, just implied. Yeah. Yeah. Not even implied, but it's subtle. Yeah. It's subtle. Yeah and not being able to have that release. I think those are really, really important. So I think Moonlight was a great depiction of black vulnerability. I would just like to see it expressed in a way that didn't explore the darkest recesses of being black. Except for the fact that alongside the legacy of black film, now you also have to think about the legacy of queer film. And thinking back on the movies that I've seen uh, that existed prior to Moonlight. I, I think of the movie uh, Short Bus, which is a Jonathan Cameron Mitchell movie, Hedwig and the Angry Inch, um, a lot of the John Water films. Uh, most of these are white. Uh, again, you're kind of hard pressed to find a lot of, you know, gender fluid black film as much. I'm sure I'm missing something, but there's things like um, Party Monster, Because I'm a Cheerleader, and this is really different and changes the game with that legacy. I mean, alongside including the black experience, which it's this is all indicative of, it's very quiet, it's very subtle, while still being just as personal, intimate, and about it. It's not in your face, really. Like, this is actually like, 
I would say for somebody who might still be uncomfortable around gay people or doesn't have just a lot of experience with gay people and being friends with them and interacting with them as being a pretty interesting introduction to it. It's not in your face about it. It's kind of taking you through that repression. Mm -hmm. And not that like gay film hasn't handled repression. I'm not saying that, but this movie really elaborates on that in very real and beautiful ways. There's something in this movie that's done so elegantly and not just in terms of homosexuality, but just in, with sexuality and intimacy in general in this film, the way the camera uses the thumb. Explain. Okay, so film's broken up into three parts, Little Chiron and Black. Oh, and that's the other thing. This movie gets things so developmentally on point in how intimacy, affection, friendships, uh, relationships, parenting, how all of those things work at the varying ages. So in part one with Little, he's 11 years old. He's 17 in part two, and he's 25 in the third part. And when he's 11 and he's playing that game that you end up learning is called knock down, stay down with the uh, like beat up soccer ball that's like frayed or just essentially the depiction of poverty that it was that game. Kevin and uh, Little run off and they're talking and there's a very like developmentally appropriate form of affection that depicts Little as this little different. Mm -hmm. He touches Kevin's face because he realizes he got hurt. And he holds his face. He, uh, he has, kind of grabs him by the chin a little bit uh, and so that he could tilt his face in order to get a better look at the harm that's been done to him. Mm -hmm. And he does that with his thumb. It, it, uh, like the way he kind of grazes the mm -hmm. cheek. And it's not like overtly sexual or anything, but there is an affection there. And then in phase two is Chiron. They're on the beach and the first thing that happens, they start like touching one another by pushing each other, you know, doing like vaguely like standard guy things. They break through those barriers. And then eventually Kevin puts his arm on his neck and he shifts his thumb to the side of his face and grazes it. Mm -hmm. I don't know, the way the thumb is used as a point of touch and affection throughout the movie is like, uh, is really amazing. It's subtle, but I think that was on purpose. The, the movie thrives on subtlety, even when it doesn't show. So Sharon is accused of being effeminate throughout the movie. I wouldn't even call it effeminate. Like that's the other thing this movie gets so dead on. Like they just say different. No, no. They never say effeminate. They call him a fag from oh, well, a very well, I, and, he and gets, that's, he's gay. Bash. They know he's gay. Yeah, yes. Yeah, so, but but from a very young age, right? Like, but the, I think this movie shows that homosexuality isn't just necessarily about effeminacy. No, no, no. I disagree. He remember the mom talks about the way that he walks. Like she's having a conversation with Juan and you're gonna like, she she talks very directly about how he's feminine. Like he walks a certain way and are you gonna be the one? No, his mom caught on, but to, to label it that way, they, again, they always say different. And I think that was done on purpose. It's different for a boy is the assumption. Right, it's different of what's expected of what boys should be. Yes, exactly. The, the same way that he checks out of the, the, the little soccer game or whatever they're playing like because he's not interested in playing that kind of game I, and i say that because i have a family member who is gay and he's estranged to the family now because of the way that he was mistreated when he was young and a lot of the patterns are what i saw in sharon we all knew from a very young age maybe four or five years old you would ask him what he wanted to be when he grew up and he would say like a hairdresser and when I look back at those experiences, it's one of the reasons that I really despise people who say that it's it's a choice. It's not a choice. Like, of course. It's, you Did know, you choose to like women? No, you just do. I just do. And, like, that, and, and they handle that really well with the conversation between uh, Teresa Juan when he asks them what a faggot is. Exactly. And I think what they show here is they don't need to say it. They don't need to show anything that Sharon is doing necessarily that's making them feel that way. But it's just the conversations around it. And that's very real. Do you know what I, I mean? I wonder though, I mean, listen, like that is a form in which homosexuality is often expressed. But I think this movie does a pretty good job of not pigeonholing its expression in any of those terms. I think it's more focusing on the timid quality and lack of ability to be vulnerable that others 
don't have an issue with. Like, if you look at Kevin, who's also gay, and he's fronting a lot of shit, so much to the point where he ends up having a kid because he's able to, you know, go both ways. But deep down, he knows what he is. But at the end, when he does know who he is and has accepted himself and has learned a thing or two when he was down in prison to be a chef, like, he's a chef. I mean, that's a as masculine or feminine a job as you want it to be. And he holds himself up very how a dude would, I guess, for lack of a better term, normally be. But he's still gay. Yes. They make note to say that Black is fronting this hard image that he's built himself up for all, him also post-prison, that it is a facade. But even in those moments, I still think he's quite masculine to a degree. I, I, he's just different. Maybe my own personal experiences are coming into play and I'm projecting them. But I think that there's a difference between being timid and introverted and being mistaken for gay or having the neighborhood know that you're kind of gay. I think it's in the mannerisms. It's in the way that you stand. It's in the way that you look at things. It's in the... In the, the, the it can be. Yes. And There's those plenty of often, cases where they're not. Yes. And the people at front... But I'm not even talking about fronting. I'll say like, for someone that doesn't front, there's plenty of different exp varying expressions of how homosexuality is expressed. I mean, like the varying degrees to which it's expressed are like uncountable. Yes. I think though, what everybody picks up on is not timid introversion. What people pick up on is what his mom explains to him that when Juan finds the mom smoking crack, yeah, no, she calls him out. That's, what, that's when out. she calls, when she make, makes mention of it. Of it, and she makes it mention of it in a very way that the assumption is that he's feminine and everybody kind of knows it. Everybody's kind of watching this kid, the way that he walks and the way that he moves and the way that he chooses not to participate in whatever it is that they're having that would make him more masculine. Well, you know why I'm having these? I actually, and I, we're both obviously projecting our own experiences onto this. Uh, as a kid, you know, my dad got me into sports. Like I played baseball and I played soccer and at one point my dad tried to get me into wrestling and I fucking hated it but I enjoyed baseball for a time but all that shit stopped after like eighth grade I eventually went into music and marching band and became really cool uh, so, <laughs> but yeah I was a drummer um, and I got really into music I started be playing in bands in like the 10th grade but with all of those experiences I was always a big nerd and I wasn't really into sports that much. And I guess it might be easier for me to empathize for that stuff because a lot of the stuff I happen to like, I wouldn't say are feminine, but are way more in the domain of it can go either way. There's as many female artists as there are male artists and musicians. So it was like I was always in these uh, silos within a community that attracted both male and female cultures. And I also find male bravado and a lot of like overt masculine shit fucking appalling and I just don't want any part of it. And so like, I mean, I'm, I'm hetero, but I mean, what, there's like that Kinsey scale. Like, it's like not hard for me to understand uh, homosexuality. Like I get it. Uh, it's not crazy to me. My hurdle with homosexuality was me being raised fundamentalist Christian. And uh, by way of me going to art school, I quickly became accustomed to it. I can tell you as an African-American man who is into sports, joined the military, I know how to use a weapon. I love the New England Patriots, I love the Boston Celtics. I was a trial attorney. In the black community, I was still considered feminine. and it's because I don't manifest masculine qualities the same way you see them being manifested in this movie. I think white people have a wider range of what is accepted Absolutely. within a spectrum. And, and I'm talking about within a spectrum of being a hetero man. Absolutely. And I think, yeah, that's really what we're, what this is speaking to. When my wife and I were meeting and speaking on the phone, she said either he's gay or he should be with a white woman is what her first thing. <laughs> and if you're not... Oh, I've uh, been mistaken for gay plenty of times. Yeah. It's a compliment to me. <laughs> um, which is fascinating because no white person that I've ever met has ever mistaken me for gay. When we first met, like I have someone's like, yo, is that dude gay? I'm like, nah, man, he's just a nerd. 
Nerd recognized nerd. nerd yeah, exactly. <laughs> so like no white person would ever mistake me for, but because of the ways that black people are used to manifesting hyper-masculinity and in a ways that are toxic, you know, and seeing these depictions of people, it's what the expectation is. Well, and, it, and it's expressed wonderfully in this movie by how this demeanor that like Sharon puts on himself in the third act. I mean, he looks really good, you know? He's fucking jacked as all get out. Lifting weights, yeah. Um, I love that part where he, he doesn't wear his shirt until he gets out of the car when he's seeing Kevin because he wants to make sure he impresses him. Mm-hmm. And, like, Kevin calls him out on it. You know, mm-hmm. it's, there's a lot of, like, sweet moments that kind of break down the amount of layers you try to protect yourself with. Mm-hmm. What I loved about the movie is how Juan's influences continue into adulthood. Well, is that his car still? No, I that's think- That's a new car, That's right? a new car yeah, that yeah. he gets- he, he has that crown, crown still. from him. And even when I'm watching act two, I'm seeing Juan's mannerisms in him, like the way that Juan moves. They even, he's he's capturing that. Like, yeah. it's amazing the subtlety that they put into this movie. And not to mention, Mahershala, Juan's performance in this is amazing. He might be my favorite performance throughout. I mean, there's not a bad performance, but I mean, he sets the tone of the movie. I Absolutely. think he's, he's the first thing you see with uh, his, his um, one of his like lieutenants or whatever mm-hmm. uh, selling for him. Right before the first title sequence comes up where it announces it's the first part little, his dealer says, come on now, can't be no worse out here. And the word out here is colloquially used a lot in the black community, especially, but it's used throughout this movie too. Kevin says to Sharon at the end, they just shared some wine at the table at his restaurant. And he's like, yeah, we hear Sharon. That like, this is now, like that present, that mm-hmm. I'm out there. Like that colloquialism is kind of carried out through this movie and used really interesting and big ways throughout. Yeah, I love it. Finding him again, the... Tragedy that Kevin, Kevin's the one that punches him in the face. and Oh, it's awful, yeah. It's awful. Because here he's just experienced his vulnerability. He comes in that day feeling great. Great, yes. And it wants to sit down next to Kevin. And what I see in Terrell is a young man struggling with his own sexuality. Because why does he keep staring at him? Like, what? what is it about him? There was a moment in the classroom where Terrell looks over at Sharon and he's just looking at him. Like, and Sharon's looking forward, paying attention. And I just can't, like, why? Like, about this person. Because they don't show Terrell terrorizing anybody else. Maybe he was. That's true. They don't show that, though. Um, Maybe he was. But it seemed as if he went out of his way to focus his energy on him. And one of the things that I do know is that in the black community, there is oftentimes this overcompensation for deficits in their own understanding of their own sexuality, which is why a person who is a little bit more calm and effeminate presents such a danger because they begin to see themselves in that person or what they could be if they were them true selves and they hate that. And that that's probably true throughout a lot of the communities, not yeah, just Yeah, no, that's not just black. Um, that's definitely not just black. I mean, I think it's just, it's whether they're gay also or not it's just people who are afraid to question those tenants about themselves because they're scared of the answers they're going to get yes and whether that answer is i'm gay or i am not or i'm somewhere in the middle like is beside the point really but it's a fear of question yes sharon's existence threatens this man's inferiorities yes it does in a way and he has to destroy that moment where he takes that chair, it was such sweet relief. <laughs> I I remember seeing that in the theater and just, it was perfect. It could not have been shot better. The music, ah, mm-hmm. oh, it's one of the best moments on film I've seen. You feel the music, the score, uh, everything. Nicholas Bratel, man. Yeah, the, the, the. Oh, and I don't know if you also noticed though, that's the first time he says nigga. I didn't. Someone called him, was it Teresa? Or oh, it was the principal, I think. Someone called him boy. Mm-hmm. And he's like, don't call me boy. And oh, he's it, like, was the principal. He was. it was the and principal. He was. And she's like, you're going to be a boy unless you man up and like dime on these 
on yeah. those people. If there was you were a man, all four of you guys would be sitting here. Yeah. And so it's like boys another, you know, often mm-hmm. depending on context, racial epithet on black people. And that's the first time he uses the word. And like it's even implied in the intimacy that he has with Kevin. Mm-hmm. Um, when they're on the beach, he says like damn, which is something very light, especially with the rest of the language throughout this movie. And Kevin's like, oh, you're cursing now? Yeah, you're I remember that. You know? I remember so that. There, there's, there's a semblance of innocence he has until he makes a decision. And it just so happens that that first decision lands him in prison. Yes. I mean, I saw this and I remember because there's something very authentic about the bullying experience in the black community and the way the language that you have. And I've had the similar experience where I'm bullied and then one day, I don't know what it was, I lost it and completely went off on the guy. And that was kind of the last experience I had being bullied. And I don't know if everybody has this experience, but something that bullying experience of being afraid to go home and do these things until you find that energy to confront the darkness. Do you know what I mean? Like it's, yeah. it's very real. And I identified with that, but you, you also wanted to see Terrell get his comeuppance. Like he was just an asshole. Yeah. Sadistic, like, sadistic, terrible. terrible. He went there about his mom and there was the, do you think Terrell knew? Well, yeah, when he went there with his mom, he, um, it really expressed to you like how small this community was, mm-hmm. which I think was a smart move to do. And I think I'm going to assume an accurate representation of that of what community. actually happens. Ex- exactly. But I also wonder, do you think Terrell knew that Kevin was also gay? And that is why he specifically chose Kevin to beat the shit out of Chiron. I don't know. I asked myself that question too. I asked myself, did, did, cause he was, he was like also, you know, fucking around with girls too. So he had that reputation. Kevin. So he, he did have that already that reputation. I often wondered if maybe Terrell and Kevin had something. I don't know. I just, I just, that's interesting. Like I thought I mean, you're not I, supposed to know. No, you're not supposed to know because I don't understand why he chose to use him to target the other person we could have easily used as friend. But it was just an effective ploy by the movie because I think the principal was talking to him and she said something about what's going on. And he said, you don't even know because the principal didn't, right? Could even fathom this kid, right? And he lost his dad, his dad, Juan, even though he wasn't his biological father, he died. We don't know what happened to the real father. And then there's a point in the movie where she tells him that she needs the house to herself, so he has to find some place else to sleep. Like, this is a guy who, for all intents and purposes, is suffering the worst forms of tragedy in he really life. Is. Well, <laughs> I mean, can you imagine what James Baldwin went through? It, you know, he's one of the probably most famous uh, gay black men. And, you know, speak like who knows outcast better than that? I guess like the uh, Lena Waithe, maybe. Yeah, I you mean. Know? But like, you know, in the Misery Olympics, that's pretty rough. But That's like, pretty rough, exactly. I am sure this is a thing that many uh, gay people in all communities go through at some point. Obviously now, thankfully, to a less and less degree, as we move hopefully for- more forward, this person whom he f- was so relieved to be able to express intimacy is also the his at this moment, abuser the next day. The lesson that it teaches him about vulnerability. And he stood up for himself in those moments. Like he wouldn't stand down. He's like, no, I'm gonna make you look. He was like making him suffer by himself, you know? He was like martyring himself. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, it was beautiful. The whole thing was beautiful. The fact that he finds Kevin again and he has to take the chance on being vulnerable and he does that. After that, a completely crushing emotional experience with his mom at the rehabilitation center after he gets that apology from his mom is when we had talked about Medea and the way that you wrap up a tragedy, that's the way you wrap up a tragedy. Oh, this, it closes off every thread needed to be closed exactly. off. Exactly. With the, everything. With the mom, I thought there was a genuineness in that. That was the first level of hope for him, I thought. And then Kevin is a second level of hope. Maybe if he can reconcile his childhood and he can reconcile his love life, 
he will be fine and he can stop pretending to be in this life that's not really him. No, the future looks good for him. Relative, relatively speaking, right? But uh, yeah. Well, I mean, he has money. He could, like, if he's okay with living frugally a little bit with Kevin, which I think he is, because it's shown to be a front. Mm -hmm. Even when he's trying to be hard with one of his workers before he leaves for Miami to go back, he can't be totally, like, ruthless. No. And, and he's taken from Juan. Like, Juan was shown to be not a ruthless guy. He just, he happened to be a drug dealer. And... You know, that's a other discussion, whether or not like our feelings on uh, drug dealers, that's like another complex issue. But you could tell that Juan was more, one of the more reasonable types of people. And like that was one of his role models. So he seemed, based on what they've shown, even though it was small, to be kind of reasonable. Juan was decent. Yes. And he had a job to do. He did it. Exactly. Whether we liked the kind of work that he did was is another question for another day, as you're saying, but he was fundamentally a good person who had empathy, who didn't care that this little kid, like you, you imagined why Juan tore down that window in that abandoned building to find him and take him out to, to dinner and teach him how to swim. And all these things show that the level of complexity in somebody who does whatever it is that he does you know, and that's really, really important. And it shows him that you don't have to be this ruthless jerk to be this way. Juan, I thought he genuinely cared about his, the, the dudes that he put on the block, as much as a drug dealer can care about a person that put, he puts on the block and puts in that kind of harm's way. Exactly. You know no, I mean? within reason, he was a man of boundaries. He mm -hmm. even respected and knew how to read. I mean, and, and you have to definitely as a drug dealer, but also like in my experience, like Black people are significantly better than white people at picking up on these subtle facial communications. And I imagine the reason behind that is due to this issue with vulnerability, not just if you're gay, but in the black community in general, as we've been discussing throughout this podcast, you have to rely and break down and process a lot less when it comes to the communication Mm -hmm. than you would if you were white. Absolutely. Uh, which is why white people are probably way more wordy, which is why I run on a lot longer than you do <laughs> in this podcast. But, you know, it is, I think, just an interesting byproduct of that disparity in experience um, often. I, I totally agree. To be a black man is to not be vulnerable. Vulnerability, even, this is just me being completely honest, even within my, the context of my own marriage is a struggle. And it's this thing where my wife wants me to be vulnerable. However, I'm not exactly sure what that would look like or how they would take that. Do you know what I mean? Like, because in the black community, there's this thing called what the ladies claim to like called Clark Kent Superman. They want their man to wear a suit by day and be Superman at night. It's almost like the inverse of the Madonna whore syndrome, right? Where you're supposed to be able to put on a suit, but be able to be the man of steel when you're at home. And that is almost the expectation. Where the inverse would be more appropriate. The inverse, right? Yeah. Yeah. I'm supposed to be able to go home, make money, come back and be this guy that everybody can rely on, who never cries, who never gets upset, who never loses his temper. Who... The same thing can be said of the black woman too. Maybe even more so due to the issue of the uh, absent black father. Yes, however, and that's often the play, right? And we've talked about this before but in Jungle Fever, right? about the lack of ability to be vulnerable to one another. I think though, women are almost expected to be vulnerable in some ways because women can call other women and cry and really explain to them how they're feeling emotionally. They have more emotional outlets than men. And that exists across races. That's just not- right. The amount of change we've experienced in the last 15 years, I think, have especially made effect to those circumstances. It's why a movie like Moonlight's able to exist as well. You know, it's a component of that context. Absolutely. So when, when I see this, the difficulty in being vulnerable stems from the childhood issues that we see in the film, where we see these guys who are playing this really rough game. And the expectation is that you play, even if you're bleeding. Yeah, I mean, it's rough. But I mean, like th th that to me, 
that's an interesting game because it was I think like another version of that game used to be called Smear the Queer. I don't know if that was done on purpose. I mean, they named it um, Knock Down, Stay Down. Mm-hmm. But as a kid growing up in like the you know late eighties, early nineties, I think it was called Smear the Queer, and it was just like you had a ball. Most of the time, when my experience was a football, but that doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. How did you go into this movie thinking about homosexuality in the black community? Like, what did you? What were your assumptions about it, and how did? It- my assumptions are pretty accurate. I mean, uh, my friend recommended me this movie. Again, he's black and gay, and he's he's one of my really close friends. He's like, you got to see this movie. I, he he saw it like I think on opening night in New York City because that's where he was living. So yeah, I ended up seeing it like a week later, and it was floored by it. My assumptions at the time going in were that, in terms of homosexuality, the black community at large is less accepting and i would say is more con- has a more conservative stance on the matter as opposed to the the you know very complex white community i think it's primarily due to the role of religion in the black community and one of the reasons i think that i think one of the reasons that religion has stuck more within the black community than it has in the white like you know you'd be hard pressed to find like as many black atheists as you would Absolutely. white atheists, which is weird considering the fact that the reason so many black people are Christians is primarily due to slavery and colonialism. Mm-hmm. But I think the reason is, is because the church is kind of, in the black community, the church is a place of, of asylum and normally has oriented itself more toward left-wing working class uh, and poor causes. And I think often, like we've when we were t- you and I were talking about music a while back, and I mentioned Black Sabbath. Although they're obviously taking from blues because no music comes from nothing, right? But you know, you have Led Zeppelin, which I would argue, despite the fact that they're obviously like a talented band that could write songs a lot of people enjoyed, I particularly don't care about Led Zeppelin that much. Mm-hmm. Um, despite the fact that you have to recognize their legacy, they still they took a lot almost like directly from black music to the point of you could argue it's not original i would argue that sabbath did something kind of different they kind of had this like white man working blues and they made essentially the first official i'm going to say metal album and metal music has the imagery of satan and the pentagram and any fuck you to the church it can find i mean especially when you you go into the bowels of the black metal community that's a whole other it's a whole other podcast uh highly recommended the scary thoughts episode on the black metal fantastic but all that is to say that the church was seen as something oppressive in a lot of white communities and it, it was just a a very like legalistic way, puritanical way of viewing the world. And the irony is, is the band Black Sabbath honestly had a lot of like really Christian lyrics if you really break them down. Anyways, that's a bit of a tangent. And that is to say that my assumption going into this was that the black community had a slightly more conservative, not slightly, a significantly more conservative bent uh, toward its views on homosexuality, which only heightened my appreciation uh, of this film. So a couple of things. I think that tragedy is the reason that black people, with the understanding that colonialism and slavery are the reasons that they are not polytheist or Muslim as they would have been in the motherland. Right. So I know that white people know tragedy. I don't think that they know it the way that Native Americans know it. And I don't think they know it the way that african-americans know it or maybe very few do no but it almost doesn't it does you're, no 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 hold on you're 100 correct it's a hard comparison to empathize with so i remember i had very strong views very strong anti-christian views when i was in college and going through that phase and this is very personal to me but one of my cousins was murdered execution style shot five times in the back of the head and I didn't change my perspective on Christianity then, but what else could I have said to his mom? Could have been honest. I'm like, I don't think God exists. This is all nothing. Or let her have her beliefs because that's what it's going to take to get her through. Because it's easy to say that. And it's easy to be flippant and say, like, 
But when you know constant tragedy, what? Uh, otherwise, if black people believed in the theory of the absurd, why would they all hang themselves? It would make more sense. You think about this from a, from a, from a basic human perspective. Take the idea that you're going to be a slave for the rest of your life and they will rape you and they will take away your kids and they will beat you. And if you try to run, they will destroy you. Make sense that you just kill yourself. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? But faith is the only thing that black people have. That's what Sharon had. Well, it, it never expressed Sharon's take on religion. No, no it didn't. It, and it didn't. And, need- I, and I also, I, I would like to say that faith, although Christianity at its best has done a lot to extrapolate on the subject, is in no way exclusive to Christianity. No, it's not. But inherent in the community is a strong belief. And I would say religion's absent from this movie. Yes. And not necessarily on purpose, but just not considered because it's not, doesn't matter if to you, this movie. If you took away religion from black people, what else would they have? I mean, that's, but see, the thing is, okay, a couple of things. To say that white people don't know tragedy is overtly reductive. And it I is. know that's not what you're that's saying. That's not what I'm saying. And, but I want to just to add to what you're saying, to its complexity, I get what you're saying. And it's, it's an important thing to be said because it provides one with perspective. It's like, motherfucker, know how to read a room. And this is kind of where the thing of white privilege comes from. And it's a very real thing. For someone not to intellectually understand how one has benefited uh, from being white comparatively, I mean, there's really some other issues that are blocking you from fully realizing that, right? But at its core, I think it's primarily an intellectual understanding that's achieved through sympathy and not empathy and you know because you have to have lived it and um because of that gap or or that like blockage that you know makes it impossible to really know what it is from someone else's shoes for an example like i remember watching recently the trial of chicago 7 by aaron sorkin the movie just got put out on netflix highly recommended i would love to cover it someday but you know, there's that moment where Bobby Seal is on trial and he's gagged. Mm-hmm. And if Bobby Seal was handed a gun by a Black Panther and Bobby Seal walked up to that judge and shot him in the head, I'd understand. Mm-hmm. And I won the genetic privileged lottery uh, as a hetero white dude. But mm-hmm. like, Born I still have this anger and I still have these frustrations and these experiences, which are all valid. But what's enabled me to empathize with communities different from me is be like, if I'm already this angry, imagine how angry they are. <laughs> and, 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 and that's really helped me put things into perspective. So I understand all these things and I think they should be talked about like they are being talked about, but there's a limit to it. It's not the whole thing. And I don't like holding on to viewpoints so tightly when they um, deny another person's experience. And it's like, I get what you're saying, but beyond giving one perspective, I don't think it, it, it falls short quick. So I don't mean to say that white people don't experience tragedy. I think the difference, if there is one, and if this is- And there's this, great ones. There's great ones. And I'm speaking very generally. Of course. Is the tragedies of the black experience are constant. Yes. And somehow inescapable. So like- It's like white people have, in a weird way, the freedom to experience existential crisis while like black people like are often barely given time for it in some time. Absolutely. I got, like strokes, I said, of course. I lost a cousin who was murdered. So in the myth of being black in your regular life, there is this whole genocide that's going on with black men killing other black men. So there's a lot of things that are always happening. Obviously. And black people have dealt with them the best the way that they could. And a lot of their coping mechanisms are around Christianity. Well, I would also say that due to Christianity's dominance of the time, when you have a community that's experienced as much tragedy, Christianity takes on a different role. It's going to focus more on different things. It's going to focus more on deliverance, asylum, forgiveness, sanctuary, all of these things. Whereas in, if you 
have a, a Christian community in a more privileged white sector, it's going to possibly focus on more of the puritanical, legalistic, judgmental components that have become quite dominant in America, like in the cliche of the, and I put this in quotes because it's really not entirely accurate when it comes to uh, denominations and church, but the white evangelical Trump supporter and how they could care less about the uh, Trump's policies on immigration. Uh, and how how does that really align with Jesus? It doesn't. <laughs> but there's just these weird realities. And I think, you know, privilege and tragedy are the the things that are defining those characteristics. And I say all that to say that black people are homophobic in concept, but not in practice. Like, I think... Well, this movie kind of begs to differ a yes, little bit. Yes, and this, this movie, like... The guy's being picked on as a kid for being gay, right? And what you're experiencing is largely his like elementary school and high school years that he's being picked on. Correct. Now, when you move further along, everybody knows, and I've said this to you before in private, everybody knows the choir director in almost every church is gay. That's just <laughs> what it is. And... Nobody says anything. Nobody excludes. As long as he doesn't bring his husband to the church, he's perfectly fine. Do you know what I mean? There are these, there are openly gay black people, Little Richard. We, every black person knew Little Richard and Luther Vandross and all of these people were gay. Did they and know though? They knew. Okay. They very well knew okay. that these people were gay and nobody cared. As long as you didn't bring it to them is kind of their position. Well, the hence the repression throughout this movie. Yes. And the world has changed in a way that it's it's a lot easier to be a gay person. I don't say it's easy, but it's easier than it was. Well, of course, progress has been made. So to change gears a little bit, what did you think about the water scene? Well, I mean, I don't even like to call it just a scene. I mean, the way water is used throughout this movie, I think, is interesting in one way. Like water is something that is fluid. Uh, it's something that's like being argued about preference and gender now. So I like the use of that. It's breaking down that trope of black people don't know how to swim. Mm -hmm. So it, you know, it addresses that at first and he is being taught by this father figure and, and it's all from an unconventional source, but it's also still like these archetypes that have been deprived of, um, communities due to institutionalized racism and things of that nature find a way through these fluid natures through these it speaks again to the tenacity of black people and that experience he had it becomes such a strong sense memory mm -hmm. uh, it's also the best piece in the score by nicholas Bertel called middle of the world which is what juan says to little uh in that moment mm -hmm. and um it becomes that sense memory he constantly goes back to for for sanctuary throughout this film. After That's... he gets the shit kicked out of him, he basks his head in the ice. Mm -hmm. The beginning of act three, you see that he does that to start his day. It's, it's cold water, which then made me think of a, there's a really good album that came out this year uh, by Medhane, M-E-D-H-A-N-E, and the album's called Cold Water, and it's him just splashing water on his face. Mm -hmm. And then he even puts his head in the freezer, just that he's chasing that memory. It's like prayer for him. And you know what's fascinating that you say that? Because in my notes, I had the water scene as a baptism. It looked like a baptism. It did. I found that there was something very calming and peaceful. And when he has his first real sexual experience, it's also at the beach. Yeah. The way that the water plays an important role in this adds a whole other layer to this movie that's already well-constructed and well-layered. Yeah. One of the other things that was really impressive with the film was how all three actors who played both uh, Sharon and Kevin, the way they cast them, even though they don't always look exactly alike, each actor carried on the character's mannerisms in yes. such a way that like, it was so impressive. It's like, how did I that happen? So. I thought that too. I had this on Blu-ray. So I was watching one of the special features on it. And apparently they never met or saw one another's performances. Wow. They just like, Barry yes. Jenkins like just set 
everything up just the way for it to play out the way it did and letting the chips fall where they may really worked. Yeah, it was excellent. Even the way Chiron's character, like I said earlier, mimicked Juan, like you can tell that the, the man influenced him, the way that he moved, the way that he did things. The way that he drove his drove car. His he car. turned the wheel. You know, exactly. Like, yeah. the, the, it was so well thought out and well constructed. That's why it's a great movie. It is. Uh, I think... I think that's it. I think we did it. Again, drop us a line at bostonnj at racetraderpodcast.com. Check the spelling in the show notes. And if you feel so inclined, subscribe and give us five stars on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, folks. You'll know when you know. Stay curious. Love you, Tayo. Mario.